What I thought I should uh, uh, do, um, mainly because I've been working on this for the last uh, year and a half or so, is do something about meter. Um, it's a big subject and you can't do it all, so I thought I'd, I'd, uh, I'd pick out some stuff that um, may interest you. Uh, I suspect only half of it will interest you and the other half interests me alone, but uh, nonetheless. So, here we go, that was the, uh, the working title. It's funny on the train. Um, so, uh, so, I'm going to look at uh, maybe 12 different things. Some serious and some frivolous and some technical and some uh, um, more to do with the kind of arts kind of uh, side of uh, uh, metrical composition. Um, so it kind of constitutes half of this, this, this book that I have coming out next year, really. Half of it's on the subject of meter. And a lot of people ask, is it a handbook of forms? It's, it's the opposite of a handbook of forms. It doesn't really refer to form at all. I suppose because I, I tend to think of the, uh, the received forms as a metrically uh, trivial matter. I think forms, you know, their interest for me really lies in their kind of literary historical uh, evolution and the kind of pressures that they, they bring to bear on language itself uh, in every aspect and not just meter. I mean, Terza Rima uh, and the sonnet, of course, the standard hobby, as we have in Scotland, the pantoum, all these have their own uh, rich histories and stories to tell, but it's not just about meter. Um, but for the life of me, I've never really understood how the rich kind of interior tensions generated by something like the sonnet uh, can possibly be discussed in the same breath as, as, uh, as the merely apparent sophistications of some other forms, like the villanelle and my pet hate, uh, the cestina. Um, so I thought I'd start off speaking about uh, the cestina, because I hate them so much. It arouses such passion. Um, here we go. So... <laughs> Cestina, as you may know, was invented in the 12th century by just like a, a buffoon called uh, Arnaud Daniel, uh, a French um, uh, sadist, sorry, troubadour, I guess. Um, the rules are really even more torturous uh, than those of, uh, of the wretched Villanelle, of course, and you may know them. This is them here. But the Villanelle, you know, repeated burdens are a real problem in poetry because in song, when you repeat a burden, you can make it mean something very different by inflecting it, by arranging it to a different series of tones. A repeated burden in a written poem especially just tends to be the same thing again. So uh, uh, this is always a problem. The Sestina, as you may know, has no repeated lines, um, but something even worse to challenge the uh, inventiveness of the poet. Um, so you have six stanzas of six lines. There's a wee schematic up there, followed by a three-line envoi, uh, the, the envoy at the end. Um, the six words that occur, this is hard to stay awake in the sense that occur at the line endings of the first stanza have to be repeated in the next uh, in the precise order 6, 1, 5, 2, 4, 3. And the procedure is uh, repeated with every successive stanza until you get six different permutations um, of these different end words and you have to write your poem around that. Then the six words re reoccur in their original order uh, at the end of the poem for reasons no one has ever explained to me at all. Um, the result is uh, what I think of as the bass guitar solo of poetry. <laughs> in the end of the poem, you know, the, 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 the poet has usually tied themselves in such wretched, wheezing, surreal, desperate notes, uh, you know, in, in, the, in the last uh, uh, envoi. It's like a game of, uh, drunken game of twister in a hospice. I mean, it's just absolutely, <laughs> just to give you some 
highlights from the uh, the canon. Uh, things you would never write under any other circumstances. I think that's, that's what, you, what you have to ask yourself. You know, would this come up any other way? Let's take pound randomly as an example. Second one on the left. And let the music of the swords make them crimson. Hell grant soon we hear, hear again the swords clash. Hell blot black for always the thoughts. Peace is barely English. <laughs> Just like somebody shouting out a lot of random words at you. Um, Rachel and Joy fight with whisks. Chandler and Phoebe burst in. There's a face-off. Ross arrives firing both pistols and Monica explodes. Um, anyway, I'll, I'll, moving on. We've got a lot to get through, so we're, we're not going to spend too much time on that. It was skewered beautifully by... Uh, I mentioned Billy Collins uh, uh, last week. The uh, unforgivably popular American poet. He wrote something called Paradell for Susan, um, which... Uh, it's a form he invented, but he passed off as a genuine Provencal form. Um, and uh, he concluded the rules of the form at the start. The Paradell is a poem of four six-line stanzas, in which the second, uh, sorry, the first and second lines, as well as the third and fourth lines of the first three stanzas must be identical. The fifth and sixth lines, which traditionally resolve these stanzas, must use all of the words from the preceding lines and only those words. Similarly, the final stanza must use every word from all the preceding stanzas. <laughs> I like those words. Uh, and uh, just to read you the final stanza of, uh, of that paradell, uh, I always cross the highest letter, the thinnest bird, below the waters of my warm, familiar pain, another hand to remember your handwriting, the weather perched for me on the shore, Quick, your nervous branch flew, flew from love, darken the mountain time, and find was my into it was with to too. Um, my uh, dear friend Michael Donaghy invented um, uh, my dear dead friend Donaghy invented something called the Cortina, which was a similar kind of thing. Um, I think if we're going to do uh, 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 laugh now, because there'll be no more for at least forty-five minutes. Um, the, uh, if you're going to do it properly, I like the double dactyl in terms of forms, which you may know was invented by uh, Anthony Hecht and his mate in the 60s. Uh, his mate escapes. His name escapes me. Um, and the rules are farcical. They're really brilliant. It's a, it's a sort of hemistichic uh, uh, comic form. Um, and uh, so it goes nonsense word. It's just sort of uh, two dactyls. Uh, then you get a proper name, then summon. Then there's your rhyme word. Then you get three lines, but one of the three lines has to contain a six-syllable word. But, the, but, but once the word is used, you can't use it again in your entire lifetime. That's <laughs> <laughs> to be the best rule in a poem ever, you know? So it's, uh, there's one of mine here at the bottom that I wrote by way of illustration. Uh, I, th I think the first thing is something Danish to do with fish. Uh, uh, Silt is yours. J.O.S. Jesperson scanned English better than Englishmen could. I'd like to think that his phonosemantically predisposed ears for what made him so good. So that's mine. But Wendy Copes is much better. Emily Dickinson. Higgledy Piggledy, Emily Dickinson liked to use dashes instead of full stops. Nowadays, faced with such idiosyncrasy, critics and editors send for the cop. There we go. Um, okay. Right. Let us be serious. Um, I want to uh, talk about pulse uh, a little bit. Just look at some basic kind of concepts, uh, uh, you know, in meter first that are reliably occurring events, uh, which are randomly distributed nonetheless in this universe. You may have noticed with very kind of rough uh, cycles, like the, the, the crons of about half a million years or so, 
um, uh, that are involved in uh, geomagnetic reversal. They're not, it's not an identical period of time. About every half a million years, the poles are going to flip around. Like um, uh, electro, uh, it's, um, uh, the decay of radiation at a Geiger counter is roughly reliable, you know, but it's not, uh, it's not precise. Um, there are events, of course, produced by stable systems that have periodicity, and they're around us all the time. Um, the even repetition of any time-based event of which we're uh, uh, consciously aware can be per perceived as a kind of a pulse. Um, but two, think about this, two occurrences of identical things aren't enough for you to register a pulse. You have to hear three, because it's the distance between the two uh, that you're actually measuring. Um, you know, the brain hears something twice and it just goes, you know, sort of, I just had one of those, you know. Uh, but if you, need, uh, if you get three, uh, you have even length gaps between the three that you can then compare. Um, so that's when your perception of the, uh, of the, uh, the, the consciously salient pulse uh, uh, comes in. Um, the gaps can be uh, uh, found symmetrical because they have duration. This is the, the, the thing to remember. The gaps between stuff has duration. Um, uh, and through the idea of pulses really born the passage of time. If it wasn't for pulse, we think we wouldn't really uh, uh, have time in any kind of perceptual incarnation. Uh, it's a phenomenon that's really created uh, by the measurement uh, of constant lengths. Uh, there are one or two renegade physicists that say that's the only uh, 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 form that time actually takes. is just in its measurement. It doesn't actually exist as a physical constant at all. Um, and it's just apparitional. It's just something that we measure. Otherwise, it ain't there. Um, but through these kind of fixed durations, we you know, count their years and weeks and minutes and seconds um, and also structure uh, the, their content. Um, these repeated beats can be very close, like the ticks of a clock or the drilling of a woodpecker, or, or if they're given enough salience, separated by you know, hundreds or thousands of years, like cometary cycles, uh, uh, for example. The limit, though, of our, which is what we're dealing with here, of our auditory perception of a pulse, uh, is around 10 hertz to, or, or um, uh, what's that? 600 beats a, a minute. Above that, you don't hear beats as discrete events anymore. You just hear them as a, one continuous note. You can test this by sort of pinging a ruler on the end of the table, you know, and listening to the point at which it starts to blur into one note and when you can hear the individual uh, uh, beats. And that's around about 10 hertz. Um, anything slower, however, than, and this is, I just found this out recently, than half a hertz, which is, a bit, which is 30 beats a minute. It's hard to experience as a pulse at all. Um, without real kind of conscious uh, attention. And I think there may be something evolutionary in that hard to experience as a pulse at all, because that's actually the limit of the viable human pulse, is 30 beats uh, uh, per minute. Um, in fact, the, uh, the cyclist, there's an IAM yesterday, I'll get back to that in a minute. Um, uh, that's that's uh, Miguel Indurain, uh, the Spanish cyclist, and he has the lowest uh, heartbeat uh, measured for a healthy heart uh, at, at 29 uh, beats per minute, which is unbelievably uh, fit and slow. But, you know, any slower than that, you're in a lot of trouble. So, um, and weirdly, it coincides with when we identify pulse. Um, but while the kind of phenomenon of pulse is vast and, and various, you know, the perceived oral bandwidth of pulse is really quite small. So it's between a tenth of a second, you know, and a couple of seconds. That's about it. Um, I've, I've put the IAM up there because it does not, as some people sweetly claim, uh, echo the human heartbeat, 
which is a lovely idea, but rubbish. Um, um, so, you know, here's your English heartbeat, which goes flub-dub, as we know. So there's a, there's a difference, uh, you know, there we can hear, which is a bit like an I am. But the French language, for example, you know, doesn't have a significant stress accent, but the French heart, which looks identical, you'll see here, does, <laughs> does not go boom-boom. You know, it also goes flub-dub, you know, so it's, it's in IAMs, but weirdly that's not reflected in the prosody. So I think that tells you that the ID is rubbish. So it's nothing to do with the heartbeat. Um, it's to do with things to do with uh, uh, function and content. Now, here's something, uh, um, it's not all going to be this technical, but some of it is, so I should warn you. Um, my favourite phenomenon in the language is something called uh, uh, isochrony. I don't know if you know what this is, but it's just the... Um, the natural exp expression, really, of the phenomenon of pulse in our speech, and it's something you can hear really clearly with lecturers' accent. You know, we're very kind of measured in a uh, uh, yelling. And it basically, just describes uh, the tendency of strong stresses in speech to space themselves evenly apart. Uh, you know, and it's the kind of innate rhythm of language. You know, the wee unstressed syllables they kind of spread out or bunch up in order to facilitate that kind of even delivery. Um, its existence is a wee bit hard to prove in the lab, and some people sort of, you know, sort of deny that it's anything more than a psychological phenomenon. But it's really uh, to do with urgency of speech. You don't hear it much in conversation, but when speech gets passionate, emotionally urgent, all of a sudden you can hear this clear rhythm behind it. Um, the cool thing I always think is that it works inversely. There's a strong psychological association between rhythmic speech and urgent speech, so that if you just make speech rhythmic, it sounds urgent, even if it's just your laundry list, you know, even if it's just the shopping or the phone book. If you make it rhythmic, we have to make the association of uh, emotional urgency. Um, there's a big confusing diagram for you. Um, what do I intend by that? There we go. So there's a, a, the first sentence there, um, just kind of stressed roughly with these wee stress marks underneath it. Uh, spoken as conversation, language which displays isochronic pulse sounds emotionally urgent. Um, but if you, if you say the same sentence as Ian Paisley, for example, or Hitler, um, can't do Hitler, but I could maybe do Ian Paisley. Um, language which displays isochronic pulse sounds emotionally urgent. That was terrible anyway. It was, there, wasn't even, there was no known human accent. Um, but uh, what would happen in a kind of situation of demagoguery is you'd find that the passion would make the strong stresses uh, uh, be delivered uh, to a far more even pulse. Um, but while uh, isochrony is a clear feature of brainwave and heartbeat and footstep and breath and so on, its presence in spoken language is just a tendency. It's not a rule. Uh, and it is partly psychological and a sort of listener-projected uh, uh, phenomenon on, on speech. Um, but as I say, all heightened speech, whether it's cries of terror, declarations of love, demagoguery, lecture stress, which you're hearing just now, will sort of over-determine this pulsing effect uh, in language and interject it as a performance feature of your, of your speech. Um, so it's really a product of physical law. It's, it's, uh, it's pulse making itself felt in language. Um, so it runs through time, but it doesn't measure time. Um, it can be sort of considered the wallpaper from which we cut out rhythm, which, which we cut out metrical template. And like meter, it consists of these weak bits of even duration, weak placeholders, and strong positions which mark events. That's how meter works. Weak, duration, strong, event. And that alternates like that. 
Um, and what we tend to do in English and what other languages do uh, as well is in the weak bits, we put all the grammatical function, all the stuff that you don't need to listen to that tells how one word relates to another, and all the content stuff that you want the brain to hear, uh, uh, you know, of the person that you're speaking to, uh, you put as a vent. So all the content words go in, the strong stresses, and a lot of the grammar just gets dumped in the weak uh, interstitial space. Um, so you have this kind of, uh, you know, pattern of, of uh, as you see there, function, content, function, content, between weak and strong and weak and strong. And there's an example from Shakespeare. And you can see all the function words have been dumped in the weak stresses and all the contents in the strong. So long as men can breathe, or eyes can see. Um, so there you go. Uh, so it goes duration event, duration event. Yeah? And if you were... Uh, if it makes any sense, and, uh, you know, and you can remember what I was speaking about last time if you were here, there's a weird relation between centum uh, and paradigm too, which is rule and instance. You know, and I do uh, have this almost mystical belief uh, that that is the way that the universe runs, alternating between uh, centum and paradigm. And I've just got a wee diagram at the bottom there of an electromagnetic wave, which of course works in the same way. It's a very odd thing that it works in the same axial relationship as centum on uh, the horizontal and um, paradigm on the vertical uh, and it flips between the two, much as language does. I have a suspicion that, that you know, the, the, the natural waves are where we got the idea and what we're just seeing is a kind of another expression of a very basic natural motif uh, in those axial um, alternations. Um, so, uh, there's a zombie um, and there's Dundee. And, you'll, and there's a strong connection between the two. Um, uh, World War Z, with starring Brad Pitt, comes out soon, and they filmed it in Glasgow. They just should have filmed it in Dundee, and they could have saved an extras, uh, frankly. So I'm from Dundee, so I can say what I like about it. Anyway, so, but the, uh, the reason for the zombie will be uh, uh, clear in a second. Um, so uh, we can concentrate on the content, as I said. You know, the, the monosyllabic content words tend to take a strong stress and the function words take a weak one. You just remember that uh, simple point. Um, so the underlying rhythm of English isn't just between weak and strong, as we're told, it's between function uh, and content. Um, so strong stresses tend to foreground stuff, you know, so you hear it as sort of Lexus, you know, and weak stresses put it into the background. Um, and I always think that, you know, that's why we hear poetry as dense with information, because you get far more strong stresses in a line of poetry than, you, than you're going to have in a normal piece of conversation. And as the urgency increases, the frequency of the stresses goes up, and more and more strikes the brain, the brain with the force of content that it has to pay attention to. Um, there are also, you know, in zombified rhetoric, the, the kind of exchanges that we hear in Dundee very often, um, I, there's a kind of, it's of such informational non-importance. Very often there are no stresses at all. None. And it's just a series of nothing but weak stresses. Um, there was a, I heard a sentence on the bus uh, once in Dundee, and it was amazing, and I think it was about milk. Um, but it was of such non-urgency that there wasn't a single strong stress in it. And this is how it was, uh, I would scan it, just as a row of, of weak uh, excess. It goes somewhere like, I don't know, Ken, whether I know there's any left in the house. I just think, hey, you usually last it last night, and I can't have it all by somewhere more than one. Um, you know, <laughs> I, even as a native speaker, I had trouble with that one. I think it goes something like, I do not know whether or not there is any left in the house. I think Alex used the last of it last night, and now I cannot purchase any until tomorrow morning. Um, you know, not a sentence of any great rhetorical import. 
uh, nor requiring any stress at all, because I think his interlocutor was as bored as he was, so it was just came out in a three of um, string of weeks. And the same day in the same bus, overheard a woman yelling at a, a, a kid. Uh, it was just for the record, it was a, a, a woman of Indian ethnicity, but it was uh, speaking in Dondonian. Um, and it was nothing but a series of, of uh, uh, strong stresses because it was urgent and the child was in some danger. You wee mink, come here, here, rick this minute, or I'll bang your pus. Um, uh, the, the, the word pus is a remarkable word. It's, it's just Dundee for face, but only in Dundee would they have a word for face, which is a swear word. Uh, you can't say, <laughs> can't say pus in front of your mother. Anyway. But you can see, so you just get a series of nothing but strong stresses there because it's emotionally urgent circumstances. Um, so in poetry, we see this kind of increase in the evenness and the number and the proximity of these strong stresses as compared with normal language. So we get more experience of content. And what that does overall is, uh, is lift the kind of um, degree of referentiality overall in a poem. Uh, and I think it explains poetry's reputation as something vivid and imagistic uh, and, uh, and invocatory, you know, as, as, uh, as speech. Um, I haven't really got time to look at um, any examples in much detail, but it's interesting when you compare some journalistic prose um, with a, a loose uh, a bit of free verse from Moore, a lovely bit of free verse there, with a tight uh, uh, a verse of, uh, you know, bit of metered verse from Emily Dickinson. You know, and I do sense a, di a difference in the kind of referentiality of each kind of passage, relatively, with Dickinson being the most content-rich, mainly because it's tied in with a, a very, very strict duple meter, which insists on uh, uh, high stress, and it insists on content and event at a higher rate than, than usual. Um, there's another wee idea I'll introduce. Uh, we're only up to five, by the way, so there's a few more of these to go. Um, some of them are shorter. Okay. Um, this is a, a, a kind of odd thing. We often talk about um, metered poems as if the meter was in the poem. There's nothing in language at all. As the guy said, you know, words are just the way that we use them. There's no intrinsicality to anything in this universe, as far as I'm concerned. It's only what we project there. Um, and, uh, and, and really, stress works by kind of uh, over-determination. Um, so there's a, there's a poet there doing his thing of introjection. That's just about the, the, the amount of meter that you put into the language. You allow the words you compose to magnetize themselves to an underlying metrical template. So you try to put it in. But in order to be heard, it has to be extracted. In other words, it has to be projected by the sensitive type here, who is reading the rattlebag, I see, nicely, and has a nice beard. Um, so between the two of them, um, if there's sufficient uh, convergence between the two, you tend to have this experience uh, as something that is metrical, you know, a piece of metrical verse. There is nothing intrinsically metrical in the verse itself. It's really uh, as a result of this kind of convergence of, of two kind of mutual fantasies, if you like, about language being metered. Um, this is a more complicated argument than I really have to explain, but that's the, uh, where I'm kind of uh, uh, coming from in this. Um, so the idea of over-determination sort of, you know, is to do with the degree of metricality. Um, which guarantees the identification of a meter in the mind of the reader, is all I'm talking about here. Um, the important uh, distinction is that while uh, the metrical template is just a sort of, you know, lineated series of strong and weak positions, 
Um, you can sort of overdetermine things, over things by a number of lines that converge on a meter. There's no one meter, one line can really incarnate a meter. You tend to have to have a bunch of lines that converge on a pattern before you can hear it. Uh, I'll try and show you what I mean. It's a, it's, it sounds like a subtle and dull point, but it's, it's only dull. It's, it's not that subtle. It's, um, uh, take this little uh, uh, verse uh, from the start of a poem by John Greenleaf Whittier, okay? Uh, as unto the bow the cord is, so unto the man is woman. Though she bends him, she obeys him. Though she draws him, yet she follows. Oh, yeah, terrible piece of verse. Okay, I know it, and it's just allegedly like, sexist. Uh, but it'll illustrate the point in a minute. He said that to one side, right? You know what a trocky is? Yeah, everybody good with trockies. I arms go da 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 da. Trockies go da 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 da. So they're flat round. So they start with a strong, weak, strong, weak. Yeah. Um, it's really hard to keep it up in English, and most people work between the two. And it's not really appropriate to say versus iambic or trochaic. We just say duple. You can start the line where you want. I mean, that's the, that's the easiest distinction. But occasionally, you can sustain trochaic verse by strenuously. Uh, rejecting that latitude and just going da 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 da. And one, a famous example of a poem that does that is uh, Hiawatha. Um, uh, and again, you know, sort of, uh, you know, it's a terrible time for racism and misogyny. We've had misogyny, lots of uh, the racism. Um, but this is supposed to sound like um, uh, Indian uh, verse, of course. You know, by the shores of Gitche Gumi, by the shining big sea water, stood the wigwam of Nakomis, daughter of the moon Nakomis. Dark behind it rose the forest, rose the black and gloomy pine trees, and so on for many pages until <laughs> I was forced to drink too much. Anyway, um, but I lied about that little passage. It's not by quite a at all. It's from the same poem. Um, and by the time you hit it, you go, As unto the bow the cord is, so unto the man is woman. Though she bends him, she obeys him. Though she draws him, yet she follows which wouldn't have been the way we'd scanned it on first encountering it. You know, as unto the bow the cordless, so unto the man is woman. As she bends him, she obeys him. As she draw him, yet she follows. It's completely different. It just depends on your previous experience of reading the verse and what you're then prepared to project as a template. So what I'm saying is, meter doesn't exist really. It's just uh, projected. It's a projection of the mind. Um, so that's that. I want to talk briefly about uh, the line in memory. Um, this isn't the one of my best slides. I did it in the train, and, and I can't remember what it's supposed to represent. Um, that's William James, so that's easy, and I know why he's there, because he was the first person to speak about the species present. Um, and, uh, and I'll explain that bit in a minute. And I can't remember what the bit with the line was, but it must have been something. I think it's to do with uh, syllables. Um, <laughs> it's in here somewhere. It's um, a... The main thing I wanted to communicate, if you haven't heard this old chestnut before, it's now become an old uh, 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 poet's chestnut, is average poetic line length is, is determined not by convention but by neurology. Um, syllable length and delivery rate show this rough correspondence to a minimum auditory response time. So that's why we think uh, uh, syllables are the length they are, uh, because it makes basic evolutionary sense. Presumably, here, you know, requests for lion-related assistance, for example, you know, from the very fastest talkers, you know, would have gone quite uh, uncomprehended, you know, uh, and uh, unheeded. And the too slow and the mumblers uh, would have been uh, eaten before the words were out, 
you know, because you need a response time. Secondly, there's this business, as I say, of the specious present. Now, this is an idea that William James uh, uh, introduced. It's a kind of notional period, really, or at least was when he introduced it, which is a kind of unit of time perception. Um, something that you experience of, uh, oh, I maybe got the quote from your man, the short duration of which we are immediately and incessantly sensible. So in other words, he's talking about our direct experience of a present moment. Uh, now, we now have a measurement for this present moment, and it's about three seconds long. We can measure it in the lab. Uh, and the experiment's complicated to describe, so please look up the research if you're inclined to. Um, but, we, but it tends to be tied with our auditory experience, because uh, our, our hearing is the most accurate sense in terms of measuring time. Um, and it comes in at about three seconds. Um, and three seconds is as long as you have, uh, you know, in terms of a unit, in terms of direct uh, experience that you can pick up wholesale as a, as a kind of indivisible chunk, and then you move on to the next bit. So in other words, you have this rough wavelength of, of, uh, of experience happening in, in, uh, every, three, every three seconds. Um, we appear to divide time into the psychological uh, time slot and prepare speech, as well as many kind of short-term um, uh, actions, in roughly three-second uh, units with wee micro-pauses between them. Uh, and as listeners, we do the same thing. We attend to the speech of each other in three-second waves. Uh, and divide it up into these manageable units of about three seconds. So we use it as a memory buffer, basically, uh, and pick it up. And if, if, it's, if something memorable happens in that, in that pulse, we can bump it upstairs for processing, you know, and, and, uh, and commit it to memory and re-examine it. Uh, and in fact, we have a, you know, a little uh, thing called the, uh, the uh, phonological loop, uh, which one of my students surprised me of, um, which uh, corresponds to that unit, and you can replay it. Um, uh, in the phonological uh, loop, because you can remember it almost uh, 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 as, a, as an auditory hallucination. The thing to do is sit in a very quiet room and snap your fingers. Now, the, the, the length of time that you can replay that sound as if it was actually present is the length of your phonological loop. It's actually it's a hideously mortal experience to do as a meditational exercise. You know, you learn something about your body you don't want to know about, and then it disappears. Um, but it's, a, but it's an odd little phenomenon. But it corresponds to this kind of unit. Um, and uh, this is a, there's an important data uh, processing consideration here too, because the loop itself is capable of holding about uh, between five and nine, round about seven bits worth of information. Now that's why it's easy to remember um, a seven-digit telephone numbers on someone's landline but it's really hard to remember you know, a, a 10 or 11 digit mobile number because it's longer than the loop you have available. You usually have to break it up into two slots. Landlines you remember, mobiles you don't um, because it falls out of the, uh, the wavelength. Um, and maybe you shouldn't surprise us then to find out that most cultures have this default poetic line adapted to the length of the human auditory present, uh, which takes about three seconds or so to be read aloud. Um, you know, because we do a lot of the even though we don't read aloud, we do sort of silent reading. You know, our lips tend to move when we read poems. Um, in making three seconds a rough frequency of the line, uh, they're more easily committed to memory since they can be apprehended as an individual, uh, indivisible unit. Uh, and the data limits of this loop uh, uh, come into play as well, and the number of syllables you can reasonably fit into it. Again, about ten. But, you know, something about between 7 and, uh, and 12, which is about five bits worth of information. So it's about the, the, the kind of limit of what we can 
uh, processor, overload a line with content, and you just get memory leakage. Um, so you find this rough sort of uh, two to four second line uh, almost universally. It's a feature of classical and, and uh, uh, Chinese and Japanese poetry, of Latin and Greek, uh, Hebrew and Slavic and German and Spanish uh, and Gallic verse. Uh, it corresponds roughly to the French Alexandrine uh, and, and English both to the four stress line and its predecessor, you know, the Anglo-Saxon line, and also the uh, English pentameter. Is, is roughly the same length, which of course came out of another line that was three seconds long, which is the uh, Italian endecasyllable. Um, it's also about the rough length of the schwa-infested tweet. A tweet is roughly about three seconds long too, and that's the reason it's that length. It's a good uh, phonological uh, memory slot. So in any art form that's the, that wants to be memorable, the ease with which it can be memorized is going to be a huge feature. So. Uh, it's, hardly surprised, it's, it's hardly a surprise to find that we tried to fit our, our lines of poetry uh, into the rough wavelength of the human present. And that's what you find when you see a sonnet. It's really 14 instances of the human present. Um, uh, so, and it makes it a damn sight easier to remember. So that's, that's where line length sort of comes from. There's a funny wee thing going on with line length, though, um, which is that... Um, that's the reason we talk about some lines as short or long. Well, short or long compared with what? Well, compared with a line of about three seconds long. Uh, and what we tend to do is a, you know, a, slightly, a slightly longer line will allow for more information and description, uh, but we tend to read it faster in order to bring it down to this three-second wavelength again. Uh, and by the same token, uh, so that the underlying pulse of the, uh, the line will speed up in order to drag its length down. Uh, the underlying tactus of a very short line is going to drag as we try to drag it out in order to bring it up to that three-second rhythm again. So the, the space at the end of the line is going to be longer. Yeah. Um, I, so we tend to be, uh, you know, gravitate towards long lines when we write narratives or long discursive arguments or, or, or things that involve a lot of kind of abstract thought are suited for that long line because there's a lot of function involved which we can speak quickly. More meditative, imagistic poems would tend to, to, you know, to, to move towards a shorter line because we want the reader to slow them down and space the content words apart as they bring it up to that uh, three-second chunk. And you can see that's what's sort of going on uh, in these two lines. Here's all, there's, again, a bit of Dickinson there. But just, I just love it. Um, but you can see that it's almost slowed down in a short line you know, by the capitalization of the content words and, I think, by her use of the, uh, the dash in that very idiosyncratic way, um, which you know, leaves this lovely space delivery. If you put it into a 14 which is just a ballad line, you know, and frigates in the upper floor extend, extended hemp, hemp in hands, presuming me to be a mouse aground upon the sands, it, to me it sounds overburdened with content. Whereas, when you look at a long line by C.K. Williams, uh, as he writes here, it's a very fast line, but it's mostly excess. It's mostly, you know, de-accented content, because it's mostly function, yeah? Water was her answer, and I fell instantly, and I knew self-destructively in love with her. Had to have her, would I knew someday. I didn't care how, and soon too, half her. Though I guessed already it would have to end badly, though not so disastrously as it did. Beautiful, but mostly function. Yeah? Not a lot of content. Compare that with the wee haiku up here by Bashel, which I think I would read, you know, roughly the way that I put in the top corner there. You know, that little um, uh, colon there is a mora. It's a little kind of pause. 
Uh, so you might say husking rice, a child squints up to look at the moon. So in both cases, what you're doing is making a compensation in order, a quantitative comp compensation to get it into your three-second uh, uh, human present kind of wavelength. Um, so that's line length done. Oh, great, it's three pages I can skip. Right, um, I, it's always good to find a mistake in Seamus Heaney, and I was delighted when I found this one. Um, but I, I just, uh, for those of you with, uh, again, it's a rather geeky little point here, um, but with an interest in this, um, with odd stress lines, you sometimes get counting errors. And the reason is, with odd stress lines, and it means, you know, where the strong stresses are three or five or seven, there's going to be a pause at the end, because we just work in even numbers all the time. So if you have a da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, you know, sort of a, a tetrameter line, it tends to run on. Whereas with a pentameter line, you have a ghost foot at the end, and you pause naturally to make it even again. Etc. Now, this can lead to wee counting errors. Now, syntax is often a factor, but often a kind of strongly even feel is formed when you run on, when you enjam from one line to the other in an odd meter line. Uh, and as a result, uh, the, do you ever get the impression that no one else is in the room is interested in this except you? Because I'm getting this now. It's just usually, <laughs> usually when I wake up screaming because you know, I'm not wearing any trousers. Anyway, so it's um, hey, fascinating. Um, <laughs> so as, what happens is um, uh, a strongly kind of even feel is, is, is formed across the line border from the last I am, the last beat of one line, and the first of the next, especially when the phrase is immediately closed on a, on a sejura at the start of the line. And uh, as some of you find in editing all the time, is there's lots and lots of miscounts whenever this comes up, and it's, to me, really interesting why it happens. And you can see that the error here, and it's not really an error, because uh, the, the fix is worse than the error, um, happens in the fifth line. Now, it's a line that's in a lovely, rough, you know, beautiful virtuosic pentameter um, of, you know, if we take it from the third line, a pitch pine, I liked it low and close, it's claustrophobic, nest up in the roof effect. I like the snuff by feeling, the perfect trunk, uh, trunk lid fit of the old ceiling. That line that, that is bolded is short, this, this tetrameter line, effect, I like the snuff dry feeling. It's, it's short, it doesn't sound short because of the enjambment. So it's not always good to be perfect. If you were to correct that line, you know, effect, I like the lovely snuff-dry feeling, I would hardly consider that an improvement. Um, so sometimes it's not always right to count, and you have to trust your ear. Um, what's happening, I've just realized it's really quite complex, you know, in terms of the mistake that's been made. But after a while, the ear wants to hear an odd number of beats, you know. So it takes effect at the end of the line. And then it hears, I like the snuff-try feeling. It hears three, it thinks I've heard, or that'll do my, me, let's start another line now. You know, and not realizing that it's counted one short. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a subtle mistake, and it's better to make that kind of mistake than actually fix it. Um, the other thing I'd like to, you know, to, you know, to throw in at this point is, um, actually, if we've got a minute, just, I just, thought I'd mention that there's, there's, there's the most beautiful example of some uh, virtuosic line endings in this poem as well. One of the things we do in line endings 
Uh, which I think does come under meter. You know, of course, as I mentioned, it's pause heavily before the silence or run on. But it means these words, you know, have greater uh, cognitive salience. And very often will unconsciously almost pun on their position. You know, they'll draw, they'll kind of, there'll be a little metatextual pun about their position with the form. You know, I opposed is a, is a bold oppositional enjambment in that first line, cutting in to the seasoned tongue and groove. Beautiful. I liked it low and close. Lovely sort of, you know, uh, 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 end-stopped line on close there. And then a beautifully extravagant uh, uh, sort of, you know, um, uh, line when the slates came off, extravagant sky entered. It's extravagant partly because it breaks in an adjective across a phrase like that, which is very, very rare. But it sounds extravagant, and of course it plays in the word itself. So there's all sort of wee metatextual punning you find, especially in uh, a poet like Heaney with, with just the last words uh, in, in uh, the line. Known as the teleuton, if you didn't know that. The last words at the end of um, Sestinas are called the homeo teleuton. You'll open the Guardian tomorrow and it'll be everywhere, you know. It's just this thing. Um, it really is difficult to work in the conversation. Trust me, I've, uh, I've tried. Um, now, I uh, just want to talk about um, briefly about closure, which is just to say that it's really kind of all in the mind as well. It's a bit like meter. It's all a matter of projection. It's all about expectation. So these kind of structural elements of the poem, you know, it's to do with the proximity to the silence, you know, at the end of the line, end of the stanza, end of the poem. They produce an expectation of significant information that's going to come just before the silence. So you can kind of ponder it and think about it. Um, the poet tends to take advantage of this pattern of anticipation and concentrate new or important semantic detail just before these uh, uh, silences. And that's where they'll prepare their shocks and their revelations and their punchlines and the moving details will be before these silent points. So your reading eye or ear begins in anticipation, but as it moves through the poem, what's anticipated has then been read and processed uh, and if it's memorable, but, you know, becomes memory. If not, it just becomes the mere past. So anticipation starts to grow around line and stanza endings with the principal weight of expectation, of course, coming at the end of a poem. Um, it's a really kind of uh, uh, interesting exercise, you know, just like to see what readers do with this promise of deep significance uh, at the ends of things. When you show a reader half a poem or a wee bit of a poem and just tell them it's the whole poem, and most folk will be, will be uh, uh, entirely satisfied. You know, it's made me really paranoid about turning the page just to make sure the damn thing's finished. Um, <laughs> I won't name the poet because uh, you know he's a friend of mine and he's just you know the wonderfully uh, one of the most amazing poets alive, I think. You know, but I, I showed him a poem of mine once, which was in the shape of a guitar. You know, it was a collig uh, the kind of calligram in the shape of a guitar. And he turned the page just to make sure that was the end of the thing. Of course, it was a bloody end of the thing. But, but it was the sort of thing I would do. Just, oh, it's, it's just on the one page. But this is, um, you know, try, I mean, try this. Imagine that you didn't know this poem, right? There's the, the Matthew Arnold's famous sonnet, uh, Dover Beach there. Uh, the sea is calm tonight, the tide is full, the moon lies fair upon the straits, and the French coast the light gleams and is gone. The cliffs of England stand, glimmering and vast, out in the tranquil bay. Come to the window, sweet as the night air, only from the long line of spray where the sea meets the moon-blanched land. Listen, you hear the grating roar of pebbles which the wave draws back and fling at their return up the high strand, begin 
and cease and then begin again with tremulous, tremulous cadence slow and bring the eternal note of sadness and that's the end of the genre. Um, it works just fine actually you know it's just like you know could you contrive a more perfect ending well as we know he did yeah. uh, and it wasn't that but it, it works just uh, uh, dandy so be aware of the extent to which closure itself is really just a projection um, now, this is again uh, definitely com comes under stuff that interests me, and if I can keep this stuff short, I really will. Um, but I mentioned earlier this, this amazing thing in the language about the alternate stress rule that I think I, I'm convinced is behind generative gamma and everything. Um, but we tend to like things uh, in groups, nice even groups of strong, weak, strong, weak beats, and tend to arrange stuff so it sounds like that, especially even just in our casual speech. Uh, the binary is a cognitive template we really don't like to let go. So we'll say Glencoe, but we'll say Glencoe Massacre, just to move the stress you know, to a place where it will alternate. We'll say 15 windows, but first 15. Uh, we'll say a, 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 a unsafe, but we'll say unsafe structure. And in the same sentence the other day, I heard insane idea and then insane policy. You know, so we'll just flip the stress around, and a famous textbook example is Tennessee, but Tennessee walking horse, you know, just to, you know, to make it nice and, um, what's that? Dark telly. Um, so we'll have this tendency to, to do that. Now, what, what I want to introduce off the back of that idea, uh, you know, I'm rather skipping through it because it's really a lecture in itself, but you'll be pleased to hear you don't have to listen to it, is the, uh, the idea of, the, uh, of it's my own idea, I think, which means that it will be wrong. Um, and my friend Derek Atridge will explain why it's wrong at some point, I expect. But until he does, uh, I'm, I'm sticking to it. Um, it's, um, it's the principle, basically, that alternate stress preserves some kind of strong, weak, high-low uh, alteration in your mind at every level of a metrical poem. Um, and the odd sort of corollary of this is that no two words can have the same stress value. Now, this is a complicated idea that's actually very easily and intuitively understood. Uh, and if you ask a bunch of school kids to da-da-da-da-da-da uh, a bit of tetrameter, like a tetrameter uh, quatrain, they'll perform it for you. And it'll go something like, you know, the da 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 oh, there we go. The da 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 the da da da. Now, if you were to roughly, you know, sort of work out what the stress values were, you would be left with a wee bunch of numbers like that on a four by four stanza. And what I think, I'm convinced, a lot of readers do really quite automatically is plug those in two stanzas and hear them according to those rough values. Um, now, the, al the alternate stress rule only works on binary pairs, uh, and a lot of forms don't fit it, but that's n this is a controversial point, I know, but that doesn't stop us plugging those forms into this little matrix. The values remain the same regardless of the shape of the point, so we just plug them in. Um, for example, when you plug in a ballad into this little matrix here, you're going to be a bit short. Now, if you, I don't know if you know the ballad form, but it goes da 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 So you get this little ghost foot at the end of the second and the fourth lines. But you just plug in the same matrix. So if you have a wee look at a poem by Edna St. Vincent Millay, you know essentially the start of a limerick, isn't you, Edna St. Vincent Millay? Anyway, so I hit this... 
neither here nor there. Um, so what I've done is I've, I've, I've plugged a, a little ballad of, of, of malaise into this little matrix that I mentioned before there, and you can see how it works out. My candle burns at both ends. It will not last the light. But are my foes and on all my friends, it gives a lovely light. Yeah? And you can see the low point there is light. That's the lowest value. And you can see there's a... There's a there's, um, um, it would have gotten lower if you'd got... Sorry, that's rubbish. It's the second lowest. It would have gotten lower uh, if, if it ran onto a tetrameter line. Now, um, if the effect is real, I think it immediately explains one of the advantages of writing in ballad meter, which is this real lift that we get uh, on the last word of the stanza, relative to that of a bit of tetrameter. Because you can see here, the values go up in a lovely light, you know, last the night. But if they'd gone on, they would have fallen. So you get a wee lift at the end of the ballad line. Um, if you look at the, the little quatrain from uh, In Memoriam here, um, uh, thine are these orbs of light and shade, thou madest life and man and brute, thou madest death and lo, thy foot is on the skull which thou hast made. And you come right down low at the end. So it's a falling rhythm at the end of the line. And I do think that will influence our psychological expectations of the content of the line itself. Um, and again, you get a, a odd little thing. So you like the, the neutrality of the, of the last line in the stanza of uh, La Belle Dame Sans Merci, from Keats there, you know. And this is why I sojourn here, alone and palely loitering. For the sedge is withered from the lake and no birds sing, you know. Um, and I think, you know, I've found it sort of a useful kind of tool of analysis, you know, for plugging into various standards, you know, um, uh, you know, to see where the rises and fall come. But there's another odd little thing that I'll mention, um, which is that it may, there may be more compositional influence in that. And this is a wee bit Kabbalistic and maybe garbage, okay, so I'll, I'll just put it out there. Um, in fact, now that I look at it, I'm convinced it's wrong, because it's too, way too good to be true. But if you take a kind of, a, a, you know, a sort of a larger matrix, you find highs and lows. So here's a matrix plugged into uh, a poem called To the Etruscan Poets. And you can see there are two lines that are missing at the end, but that doesn't stop us imposing this cognitive template on, the, uh, on this piece of metrical verse, right? So there are, nonetheless, there are two lines that you just plug it in. It's going to have highs and lows. Dream fluently. You always find that there's often bold inversions at the very highest values because they can take them. Um, and you stroke, and uh, like a fresh track, you know, after the first quarter train, that's a, that's a, that's a bold uh, high point. What kind of interests me is I started, and this is when you start to lose your mind, of course, um, so I started to look at the lowest values, and very often they, they turn out to be in a significant position, um, because I think the poet hears them as the lowest value. The lowest value yields in the word verse. So that's crucial to this point, because that's what it's about. It's about the destruction of an entire literature, and the word verse is the content word that falls in the lowest stress value, and it's, and it's almost de-accented. It's so low. And so it's sitting at 10 within that matrix there. You strove to leave some line of verse behind. It's almost anaphoric. You know, it's almost a, a, a function. It's low. Um, coincidence? Maybe. I have no idea, really. Um, similarly, if you did the same thing with Frost's Fireflies in the Garden, and that's the whole thing. It's only uh, 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 six lines long. But you would find the same thing. Um, here come real stars to fill the upper skies, and here on earth come emulating flies. But though they never equal stars in size, and they were never really stars at heart, achieve at times a very star-like start. 
only, of course, they can't sustain the part. Um, and the low point comes in the word stars. You know, it's the, it's the, it's the, it's the fake stars of the fireflies that takes the D accent. Um, so, uh, you know, again, I don't know if there's much more to it than that, you know, other than just uh, uh, luck and coincidence. Um, but, you know, again, look at this one, you know, which we heard of a minute ago. Um, the low point in a, in a pentameter matrix occurs after eight lines, um, because you could think of the poem as a kind of, <laughs> I was a way to say, um, a curtle uh, catastrophe. Um, but it was going to come out as turtle catastrophe. Um, and I think that maybe it would be better to think of a kind of long-form ballad to start it, really, you know. But the low point in terms of the matrix comes after eight lines on the penultimate stress. So, in, you know, so in this case, in the word verse. And this is exactly, I think, you know, even factoring out my uh, reader's paranoia, where you might expect it to be. It's the crucial word here. It's about his inability to write, you know. But out of sheer jealousy, you know. So, and, and it's rather odd to find the word um, uh, uh, verse cropping up at that de-accented point, um, where you might psychologically expect it to occur. Um, but like I say, I think this may be garbage, and there may be nothing in this at all. Um, so I'll just finish up with a wee sort of general note, um, I, uh, and this will be relevant. Um, <laughs> it's always relevant. I, and I haven't really said much on the subject of metrical composition, and the reason is that I don't necessarily think any of this stuff does poets any good at all. You know, I don't know if it does them any good to study this stuff. You know, and I know most of them really resent it. Um, I find it interesting, but I don't know if it's if it's crucial for poets to know. Um, so it might surprise you to hear that I think there's almost nothing to write about in the actual practice of metrical uh, metrical composition. Uh, because as an act, I think it's very simple. Uh, you know, a template is memorized, the words are magnetized to that template. Um, you know, and the metrical template, the da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, just draws words from the mind and pulls language into their close or rough shape. Um, do you know, do you ever listen to these, uh, uh, look up some of these videos on YouTube? There's a beautiful one of we, of we twins, uh, pre-linguistic uh, kids, talking to each other, you know, and they don't use any Lexus, but so all they're using is phonological contour, you know, and the imitation of uh, alternate stress in speech, and it's the most subtle conversation, you know, and they're going back and forth and, you know, and giving each other the time, it's always like an argument that happened with each other, you know, but there's no content whatsoever, there's just the shape of it, um, and that precedes Lexus, which is the interesting point here, you know. Um, A poet could sort of recite you a whole sonnet, really, complete with a sophisticated argument, you know, a devastating volta, you know, and a weighty couplet without saying a single word, just by da-da-da-daing the thing, you know. And such kind of rhythmic or, and phonological templates place real words just like those of our pre-linguistic chatterers on the tips of poets' tongues. The method of medical composition replicates, I think, that first joy in learning how to speak. You know, the sense of words being sprung from the mind uh, by form and rhythm and structure alone. Meter is anterior to speech uh, and, and both generator, uh, generative uh, and predictive of speech. That's the reason we like to write in meter, because it draws words from the brain. Um, the words we uh, uh, could not yet speak were tricked out of us 
by phonological structure, and the words we dare not speak as poets are also drawn out of this by much the same procedure. We're lent the courage to do so by rhythm. And as for where that rhythm came from, well, you know, it just, it's where we started, really. Everything in the universe is rhythmic. Everything's driven apart by entropy, uh, yet everywhere matter seems to resist this and reflects this weird state of order still inscribed into us and into everything around us by our primal singularity, by the Big Bang, the cosmic egg, uh, and falls into wave uh, and into sphere and into orbit and into season and into, and into pulse. Uh, and as creatures of this place, so do we, thought we fall into the same patterns. And it turns out a complex system of language uh, is just as deeply wrought with these symmetrical whorls, uh, you know, and rhythms as patterns as we are and the rest of the universe is. Poetry, I think, discloses all of this. It codifies this and crystallizes it. Uh, you know, it finds these patterns in our speech and sings this underlying unity the same song that appears in everything, those concentric, you know, sort of circles that appear in your coffee mug when you tap the table are always things of, uh, you know, a, a miracle to me. Um, nonetheless, it's, it's, it's rather sad to find yourself born into a universe founded on the principle of nostalgia. I think. Well, there we go. Anyway, uh, thanks for your attention, uh, and uh, it'll still be sunny outside, so...